Good morning, Village Church. Good. Oh, that's real good. Nice. Nice. If you have your Bible, please open it to Esther chapter 1. We will be looking at verses uh, 10 through 22. Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. We, we started this uh, new series last week in the book of Esther. And it's a challenging book um, to preach from. And some of those reasons I mentioned last week is that it doesn't mention God in any of the chapters. And on the surface, he appears to be silent and absent and distant. And also the author of the book doesn't give any insight into the moral and ethical motives of the people in the book. And so the book is simply history, unbiased history, without commentary, without judgment, without political spin. And, and, and as I said last week, the, the book isn't fake news. It's not whitewashed history. It's not right. It's not left. It's just what happened. And when, when you see Esther, what you see in Esther is life in shades of gray. Life in shades of gray. For, for people and events and things aren't what they always appear to be on the surface. And the book also shows us that God can often appear to be silent and absent in the shades of gray of life. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God was not there? Have you ever wondered where is he? Have you ever felt abandoned? And have you ever said, how long, Lord? I get it. Life can take you there. But we have, one of the things we also have to understand is that God is never silent in the life of his people. And is never absent in the life of his people. You see, the book of Esther also shows us that God's providence is always at work within his creation. It's always at work within his creation. It's at work, even though it is often unseen and invisible. You see, his providence is, is how he preserves and governs all aspects of his creation. All aspects of his creation is subject to his providence. Even the shades of gray of life is subject to his providence. Last week, we talked about shades of gray in human power. This morning, we're going to talk about shades of gray in law. Shades of gray in the way the law can be used in the world. Are y'all hearing me okay? Okay. I feel like this mic is very loud. So if you have your Bible, Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman and, and Bista and Harbana and Betha and Abatha and Sathar and Carthage, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King, uh, I can't pronounce the word right now, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vesta before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vesta refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law 
and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Amathar, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. The Mamukin said to the to the, to the, the Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has the queen done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of the king. For the queen's behavior will be known to all the women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they were saved, the king commanded the queen to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If If it pleases the king, let a world order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of Persians and Medes, so they may not be repelled, that Vashti never again can come before the presence of the king, and let the king give a royal position to her royal position to one who is better than she. So when this decree made by the king is proclaimed through all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the world provinces, to every province in in his own strip, and every people in his own language, that every man is to be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his own people. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father God, when we come to texts like this, it's often hard to understand what, what are you trying to communicate here? What, what are you trying to say to us? How is this connected to Christ? How is this connected to the gospel? How is this connected to you? So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and enlighten us today and help us to see that all your word is your word. And every word in, your, in this Bible is applicable to our life. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to come. We need you to descend. You know where each of us live, young and old, Lord. You know the things that we struggle with, our fears, our unbelief, our doubts, our insecurities. You see us. And so I do pray that you minister to each of our hearts. Let us hear what we need to hear today so that we can get the encouragement we need to go back out and press on one more week in this world in which we do live. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Ten years ago, not ten years ago, years ago, when Waikita and I were living in Decatur, Alabama, I used to spend some time at a local coffee shop called Java J's. That was that I was still in seminary at the time, and and I would go there to read and to study and to write papers. And on one occasion, uh, I overheard a passionate cell phone conversation between a father and daughter. The daughter was telling her dad about issues that she was having with her landlord and so she was upset she felt like the landlord was being unfair now i wasn't trying to eavesdrop but the dad was talking really loud and so you couldn't help but to hear him 
but, but this is what he told this is what he tells his little girl. He says, Here's the golden rule, sweetheart. Here's the golden rule. The one with the gold sets the rules. The one with the gold sets the rules. What do you think about that? How does that make you feel? The one with the gold sets the rules. Now I've never forgotten it. This was years ago. I've never forgotten that conversation. But it made me think. I never thought about that before. But when you look at the world and how the world actually functions, sometimes you wonder, maybe it is true. The ones with the gold sets the rules. And we see this golden rule being lived out in the opening chapter of the book of Esther. We see it in the way this Persian king, Erxes the Great, displays his power by giving two different feasts. In these first verses, we see him talking about himself. It's all about his glory. It's all about his greatness, his wealth, his hospitality, his generosity, his authority. For 187 days, he showcases himself. He's a sinner. He makes himself look good. And this king continues to do this until the very end of the second feast. And on the last day of the second feast, he decides he wants to display his power one more time to show it off one last time. So while he was impaired, he decides he wants to put his wife, the queen, on public display before drunk men to parade her around like a trophy to further show the men of the kingdom that he has the absolute best of everything, power, wealth, lifestyle, and the most beautiful woman in the kingdom is his wife. And that's what he does in these, first, these verses 10 and 11. That's why he sent the unit to, to go get her, to bring her before her, her royal crown in order to show the people her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The Persian king has absolute power in the Persian Empire. As I said last week, this is not a democracy that, 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 that he has. He has all the power. And he can secure whatever and whoever he wants. And no one dares refuses the king. No one dares refuses him. He's the one with the gold, okay? And he's the one who sets the rules. And then when the king summons you, your only response is what? Yes, I will be right there. And so he commands the queen to come before him without challenge, without debate. But she says no, not today. She refuses to come. She rejects the most powerful man in the world at the time. She says, no, I'm not going to come. Now, the author doesn't tell us why. So there's no good in us speculating why she doesn't come. And there's no commentary about why she makes this decision. What we do know is that her decision will have consequences. Her decision and her refusal of the king will set certain events into motion. And it reveals what people in power are capable of doing when they don't get what they want. And it should also keep in mind that even though God is not mentioned or seen, he is providentially at work. And that's what we, as I said last week, we have two options. 
either God is at work in this world or we're just moving through. Which is it? Either he's at work or we're just coasting along through life without him being involved in our life. And so what we have here in the book of Esther, even though God is not mentioned here, what we have is, is the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility being played out together. And no theologian know where those two things meet, but they, are, they both exist because we know we're not robots. We still make decisions, but yet God is still in control of his creation. That's what we see in this book. So he is at work. He is moving things in, in this book, in this history, and in your life. If right now, if you feel like I don't see God, if you feel like I don't know if he's working, trust me, he's working. He's always working. Always. Now, the king, he doesn't take lightly to being rejected by the queen. Okay? He doesn't take it lightly. It, because it's an embarrassment to him. As I said last week, he has this, the banquet that he has here, this is, he's, in, he's preparing to go to war with Greece. And so in this banquet, he has all his military leaders, his, 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 his princes and his governors all here. And so the queen refusing him is a, is a political embarrassment. And so he gets into his feelings, an emotional response, like you do if you ever reject it, like your kids do when they get rejected and you tell them no. He becomes enraged, and his anger burns within him. His heart is filled with so much anger, and it's written all over his face. And, and what we have to understand, again, it's never safe to be on the bad side of a person who has absolute power. Please know that. It's never safe to, to be on the bad side of someone who can mess up your life, who can cause you your job, who has who control over your livelihood. Because if you get on their bad side, they can make life rough for you. And that's what he's going to do to the queen. He does not let it go. He does not brush it off as a minor offense. He pays her back. And what he does is that he turns to his royal advisors. He has seven of them. And this is a normal practice for the king when he needs counsel. He turns to his advisors for, for help. And these advisors, they, they see the king face to face. They have the eyes and ears of the king. So that means these seven men, they have great power, great political influence. Frank Underwood from the show House of Cards says, power is like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. The closer you are to the source, the higher your property value. The property value of these seven men are off the charts. The highest property value in the kingdom. As the verse says, these men set first in the kingdom. They set first in the kingdom. And so that means they had influence over the king. They can dictate what the king does. They can even manipulate the king if they were clever enough. So he seeks their advice. Why does he seek their advice? Why does he seek their advice? Why doesn't he just go talk to the queen himself? That's her husband. Why does he turn to experts in the law? 
to talk, to deal with what his wife did. You see, he doesn't see the king, the queen's rejection as a marital issue or domestic issue. He sees it as something entirely different. He looks at the, he, the, he, changed, he says, according to the law, what must be done to the queen? Because she has not performed the command of the king delivered by the eunuch. The law. Do you see what he's doing here? Do you see what he's trying to do? He wants to use the Persian law to deal with his wife. He wants to use the Persian legal system to punish her. He's making it a criminal, a criminal offense to refuse the king. That's what he's doing. It's breaking the law. I love reading mystery novels. And my favorite authors right now are mother and daughter, son, teen. They go by the name Charles Todd. And their inspector, Ian Rutledge, is, is probably one of, my, is one of my best series out right now. That's just my personal opinion. The series is set in England in 1919, and Rutledge is an inspector at Scotland Yard. And, and, and if he was alive today, he would probably be my man crush because I, I love Ian Rutledge. I wish he was real so, <laughs> so I can have his autograph. And in one of the novels... He says, the law is only as good as the men entrusted with the burden to carry it out. The law is only as good as the men entrusted with the burden to carry it out. Think about those words. Take them to heart. What does scripture teach about people? Are we inherently good? Are we born good? No, we're born into sin. Now, we're not as sinful as we, as we can be, because if we were, none of us would be alive right now. Because of God's common grace and because of the image of God is in us, we're not as sinful as we can be. Human beings are, 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 have shades of gray about them. We're not just simply black and white. And since human beings are inherently good, the way they use the law won't always be either. And the way we use the law will also be in shades of gray. That means the law can be used for good and evil. It can be used to ensure justice or hinder justice. It can be manipulated and it can be upheld. There can be just laws, unjust laws. Law can give reasonable punishment or it can overpunish. Law can enforce Law can be enforced equally among people or unequally. The law can be used to keep just order or it can be used to keep people in their place. The law can do all those things. It can. If you look at the world that we live in, look at it even within our country, the law will always be used in shades of gray in the world in which we live. In every nation, in every government, in every system, in every business. And at times, if we're honest with ourselves, the law appears to be in favor of those in positions of power or influence, just like it does in this Persian court with this king and his advisors. Remember his question. According to the law, what can we do to the queen? What's her consequence? What's her judgment? What's her punishment? Notice, 
The queen is not even there to defend herself. She's not even there to, to, to give a reason of why she didn't come. She's not present to defend herself. They're going to punish her without even seeing her or, or hearing her side of the story. The verdict is already given. She's already guilty. It's an open and shut case. You see, in this system, the law is the one way, one way the king expresses his absolute authority over his people. And he seeks the counsel from these advisors to help him to do it. But he doesn't get an answer right away. Instead, one of the advisors, he escalates the situation. He escalates the situation. He, he, he moves it from a criminal offense to a capital offense. Look at verse 16. The Mamukin says in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vasta done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the providence of the king. Do you see what he's doing? He changes the narrative. He changes the scope of the queen's rejection. She hasn't just wronged the king. She has wronged the whole empire. Her refusal is a, is a disrespectfulness to the whole kingdom. You see, before they can agree upon what to do with her, they must agree upon the scope of what she did. And for this official, it's not just a criminal offense, it's a capital offense. It's against the whole kingdom. And to, pro to prove his case, he gives these, the king and the officials what I call a slippery slope argument. And some of you are familiar with a slippery slope argument. It's the belief that certain actions and decisions can start a chain reaction that leads to a worse situation. Verse 17. For the queen's behavior will be, known, will be made known to all the women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say the king commanded queen, the queen to come before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media would have heard of the queen's behavior, would say the same to all the king's officials. There would be contempt and wrath in plenty. Do you see the slope? Do you see what he's doing? Basically, the queen is going to start a revolution in the Persian Empire. It's going to, she's, going to, she's going to cause an uprising among all the women in the kingdom. It's going to lead to a kingdom-wide domestic issue. It's a slippery slope. And when the women hear of what the queen did to the king, then they're going to do the same thing to their husbands. They're going to cause men to lose control over the households. Marriages are going to fall apart. Because of what the queen has done. I'm like, wow. How could, he, how could he get from point A to point B? She just didn't come to the dinner. Now all of a sudden she's leading a revolution. One action has been escalated to the point that now it's an indictment of all the women in the kingdom. One decision. One action. Now all the women in the kingdom are now under indictment. What's underneath this slippery slope argument? What do you think? It's fear. Fear of what could happen. Edmund Burke says, 
No passion so effectively robs the mind of all its power of acting and reasoning as fear. This advisor uses fear to influence and manipulate the king, and he disguises it as him caring for the good of the kingdom and doing what's in the best interest of the people. Fear is a powerful tool in the hands of the powerful to control the masses. And the one thing people in power fear the most is the loss of power. And that's been played out in these verses before us. In the end, the slippery slope wins. The king (laughs) agrees with this advisor. And so they create a new law on the spot. Can you imagine living in an empire where they just create a law on the spot, out of the blue, a law that's irrevocable? That's the kind of world that the people of Israel are living in now. That seven, eight men have that kind of power. I don't like what she did. Now we're going to create a new law. That's the kind of power they have. And the law has an effect on the queen and all the people in the empire. First, it strips the queen of her crown, her title, and her position. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Queen Vashti is never again to come before the king, and let her, and let her royal position be given to another who is better than she. The queen is demoted to a position of people who never get to see the king's face. She has been silenced, put out of the public's eye. And next, the law seeks to regulate domestic relationships. I mean, you gotta, you got to really think you have a lot of power if you can regulate marriage through the law. And that's what, I mean, that's what they're doing, regulating marriage through the law. Verse 20. So when a decree is made by the king and and proclaimed through all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low. They're making that a law, okay? That all wives have have to do this. This advice pleased the king and the princess. So they want to use the law to control what happens in marriage. And so when you look at all this stuff, when you look at what is happening in these verses, if you're like me, you're like, what is the point? What point is this author making here? I don't see how it's connected to Christ, how it's connected to the gospel, how it's connected to God. God is not even mentioned. What is he trying to do here? Trust me, it took me a long time to finish this sermon. I was asking myself that all week. But what he does, he gives us an insider's view or the inner workings of the Persian court. He's making it clear that the king and his seven advisors have the power to create law and the power to manipulate the law for their own benefit. One philosopher says, there's no crueler tyranny than that which is perpetuated under shit of law in the name of justice. That's what they're doing. They think what they're doing is just, that it's justice. 
the author is making it clear that the people of Israel are no longer living in a world, in a country that's governed by law, Yahweh's law. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not, they're not, Persia is not like Jerusalem. It's not like when the, the two kingdoms where God's law governed them. That's not the world Israel lives in anymore. They are in exile. Now, some of them did return to build the wall, but, the, but Erzsi still controls the world at this time. So Yahweh is not the God of, of Persia. His law is not the law of Persia. The center of all this is Erzsi the Great. And, and the people of Israel are under his power. And at this point, they have no political power. They have no political influence. They are on the margins of life. Now, does that mean Yahweh has abandoned them? Does that mean the king's power and ability to create law on the spot keeps God's providence at bay? Can human power and laws somehow erase God from his own creation? These are questions that we should ask ourselves. Now, it may look that way on paper, but it's not true. It won't ever be true. We have to understand that Yahweh Elohim, he doesn't need his people to live in Jerusalem in order for him to sustain them. Okay. Because he's not a naturalistic God. His power is not confined to just Jerusalem. He's a global God. And his work and power is being felt even in the Persian Empire. His providence is at work. He will provide for Israel, and King Xerxes cannot stop him. If he could, then God would not be God. Now would he? Now would he? The same is true for his people today. For those who have set in faith in Christ, who rest upon Christ for salvation, who believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, God is still sustaining you. None of God's people live in a theocracy. And a theocracy is, a, is what old Israel used to be. None of God's people live in Christian nations. There is not a nation in this world that has bowed the knee to King Jesus. But yet God still sustains his people. Why? Because he is God over all creation. That's why. His providence is always at work, even though it's often seen and unseen. His providence is at work in a democratic society, a communist society, and a dictatorship. No form of government, government can prevent God fulfilling his purposes in Christ. And there's no law that man can pass that will erase God from his own creation. And if you believe God can be erased from his own creation, then your God is very small. Very small. There is nothing that man can do that can dethrone God from his throne. I don't care how much suffering comes in the world or how ugly life gets. God is still in control here. Because if he's not in control, then we are in trouble. Every, all this is nothing. If he's not in control. Psalm 103, 19 says, God has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty Rules over all as his people, his beloved. 
Where does your help actually come from? Where does your help actually come from? Who is sustaining you? Who is providing for you? Is it man? Is it the powerful people? Is it the people with influence? Is it the Constitution of the United States? It's our God. Our God is sustaining us. This is what helps American Christians think more globally. When we think more globally and we realize, I say this often, and I'm going to continue to say this, if God is sustaining his church in places where it's persecuted, will he not sustain it here? If he's sustaining it now, where we have brothers and sisters who are being slaughtered because they're Christians, will he not sustain it here? He will. Because he's that kind of God. And we have to hold on to that. We have to believe that. Because if we don't believe he's at work, then we're going to live our life like a leaf in the wind, being blown here to there by fear. If you don't believe that God is at work, that's going to be your life. Because when you believe he's at work, when suffering and persecution come, you stand firm because you know your God is with you. You know he's with you. And that's an amen statement. Our life is not a series of unfortunate events. It is not. Your life is not in the hands of man. Your life is not in the hands of fate, karma, evil people. Your life is in the hands of a God who sent his own son to die for you. And this is either true or not true. It either changes you or won't change you. Again, do you believe he's able? Do you believe he's willing? Do you believe he's working, even though you don't feel it or see it at this moment? That he will never abandon you. If he gave up his own son for you, for your sins, how will he not also give you all things in his son? We should all ask God to help our unbelief. That from moment to moment we can doubt his faithfulness. We can doubt his love for us. We can doubt that he'll make a way for us. And I get it. Life happens. Pain happens. We go through stuff. We suffer things. We lose things. Loved ones pass away. There are failures. There are mistakes. Things happen. And none of those things mean God doesn't love you. None of those things mean God is punishing you. None of those things mean you are orphan. None of those things mean you are forsaken. None of those things mean you are not by yourself. It should drive you closer to the throne, not farther away. What did Peter tell Jesus? Where are we going to go? Where else can we go? 
for you to have the words of life. Where else can you go, beloved? Where else can you run? But to Jesus. To Jesus. There's a new song that we just learned a few weeks ago. And it says, you are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything that we can give. By your plan, that's just the way it is. You are not a God whose power, you are, you're the only God whose power none can contend. You're the only God whose name and praise will never end. You're the only God who's worthy of everything we can give. You are God. And that's just the way it is. Okay? God is providentially at work in your life. And that's just the way it is. Ask the Spirit to help your unbelief. Please pray with me. Well, I know I just preached that, but I don't always believe it. I might not even be believing it later today. And so I need you to help my unbelief. It's always easier to preach the truth than to believe it. And so my prayer is that we will not just speak the truth, Lord, but we will actually believe it in the places where we truly live. Help us to see your hand over our life. Help us to see that that life might not always be what we want it to be, but the one constant thing we can rely upon this, in this life is your faithfulness to us, that you would not ever leave us. And so I pray for your bride that, that you be with her, be with the, um, the congregation as they go forward this week, provide for them, sustain them. And I thank you, Father, for Christ his sacrifice for us upon the cross. And I thank you, Lord, that you are able and willing to forever provide everything that we need. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Will you please stand as we close our service?